0: Amen. If you would please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we are going to be in verses 49 through 59 this morning. It's a rather challenging text that we actually find before us today. But I hope that as we read it, we will be further encouraged for the task that is ahead of us. So for Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 49, Luke 12, verse 49, Jesus is speaking. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against mother, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so It happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you, do not, uh, and, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you, go with your make, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us go for our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh God, we do ask you that you would help us to see your word that's in front of us. I pray that we would be attentive to it, that we would remember what it is that you have done to get it to us. I pray that we would take these words to heart and that this would make an impact in our lives. Lord, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. When you were in school, how well did you anticipate? the tests and quizzes that were written out on your schedules beforehand? Were you the kind of kid that had their schedule all written up and ready, taking a look at the end of each class period so you would know exactly what test was coming and be able to be adequately prepared for it? Or were you the kind of person that would say, we have a test in history class today, and you would say, am I in a history class? Teachers everywhere are exasperated with students that they would if they would only read the syllabus take note of the signs that they have already given to them that they might be prepared for the coming events of judgment day so to speak but so often even though we have long since moved on the the times of syllabuses for us there are other things that we should be keeping in mind other signs of judgment to come, other signs of events that are important that we need to be reminded of. This final judgment that Jesus warns us that is coming is going to be a great divider for humanity. Jesus is very honest with what this will mean, these cataclysmic events that are coming, and indeed the event of his own ministry and how important that will be. So he wants us to be aware, and he wants us to be honestly prepared for what's coming. So today, we're going to be looking at a passage that is challenging to us, and we'll see it with our usual two points, which you can find written for you in your outline, inserted into the bulletin. What we are going to understand today is that Christ will bring division, will cause division. And the second thing that we need to realize is that we need to repent to Christ's side. So the first, that Christ will cause division. We might be surprised to hear Jesus' words here in verses 49 and 50 and so on, that he is bringing division. Usually when we think about Jesus coming, we think about the Charlie Brown peanut special, or is he has come to bring peace on earth, goodwill to men. What happened to that? That's in Luke chapter 2, so it's not like it's a different book. Not like Luke has a different idea of what Jesus is here to do. But Jesus is actually quite emphatic about this in verse 52. Or excuse me, uh, uh, verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you. The no there is incredibly emphatic in the language that he's using. He wants to put a real emphasis on the fact that he is not here to bring peace. But how do we reconcile that? What do we, what was Luke chapter two talking about when he said that there would be peace on earth and goodwill towards men? Well, in order to understand that, we need to understand what Jesus is talking about in these earlier verses in 49 and 50. Here it says that I have come to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until... It is accomplished. Here in verse forty nine, there is debate as to what that word fire is meaning. What is he talking about when he says he's going to cast fire onto the earth? In other places in Acts we could see fire is being used as an as an illustration for the Holy Spirit. It'd be this sort of this cleansing, empowering fire that is on its way in Acts. But that would make sense if we didn't have verse fifty, that there is great distress that Jesus has until this is coming. So when we look at other meanings for fire here in Luke and the rest of the New Testament, it usually refers to judgment that is coming. And I think that's the sense that's going on here, that there is a judgment that is coming to the earth and would that it were already kindled. But Why is that? Well, he's going to be absorbing that judgment, as we see here in verse 50, that I have a baptism to be baptized with. And we could think, it's like, well, maybe this is referring to his baptism with John, but... That's already happened. Jesus is speaking here as if this baptism is in the future. And baptism can refer to, as one commentator put it, of being immersed in catastrophe. And that's what Jesus is anticipating. This is why there is great distress that's in Jesus' soul until this is done. It's not just the fear of judgment that is coming, the separation of the Father as he is enduring all the wrath for our sin but it also is because this is what he's come here to do, that there is going to be a wonderful effect to Christ's work that salvation will be accomplished for his people. And this is what he is going to endure, an absorbing of the wrath of God for all of his elect. Now, there is going to be division because of that. Because we'll find in the Bible throughout it that there is quite clear that not everyone is going to be going to heaven. Not everyone is going to escape the wrath that is to come. And this is going to be the ultimate dividing point of all of humanity. All the other things that we try to break ourselves up over are really quite temporary and really don't matter. Because all of those things are going to be swept aside. It doesn't matter where you lived, what color you were, or who you voted for. At the end of time, the only question that's going to matter is did you put your faith in Christ or not? Have you repented? Have you surrendered to the king? That's going to be the only question that's going to matter because it has an eternal impact. Every other decision that we make, at most, could last a few decades. But this decision, this call, means everything. And of course, this difference is not going to be just apparent at the end of time. If you've truly come to Christ, it's going to make a difference in the here and now, will it not? Your affections are going to be different. Your desires will be contrary to all the rest of the world. All of us naturally are opposed to God. It's in our nature. Our sinful nature is a fallen nature, and it is born at enmity with God. There is a natural resistance that is in us all against God. That's why we need to be transformed by Christ. So if we're all born into a rebel camp, and one decides to join the other kingdom, that's not going to bode well for his reputation in the rebel camp, will it? The rest of them will see him as some sort of a traitor. Now, maybe those that we might divide ourselves from might not see us as traitors, might perhaps just see us as weirdos, or might just see us as overly zealous, or just a little crazy with the religion. But in some way, shape, or form, there is going to be a pushback that's occurring. And apparently, in verses 52 and 53, this division can extend all the way down even to the intimate circles of a family. Now, this is not a guaranteed thing. This is not saying that if we come to Jesus that we will necessarily put wedges in our family. Some of us are blessed to have families that are, in, that are all believers. And that's a wonderful blessing. But we should remember that that is indeed a great blessing. And not take that for granted. And for those of us that do have family that is divided against us. This is something that Jesus warns us about and is honest with us that this is what it might cost. So many times when we're looking in our world today, everyone is trying to make it seem like we're paying a lesser price than we are. You watch things on television, it'll say it's only $29.99 for payments of in really small letters. Or they'll give you the pre-tax amount of money so this way you think, well, this is a little bit less than I'm actually going for. There's always a surprise cost that comes with things. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus is very upfront. Here is exactly what this is going to cost you. It's going to cost you your whole life. It may cause you division with your family. It may cause you to be an outcast in society. Here is the deal. I will also richly... Compensate you. It says in the Bible, there is no one who has lost family that will not be amply rewarded a hundredfold in the times that's to come. Jesus promises wonderful things to us, but he's very honest with what this will cause us and what this will cost us. But of course, the question that we have to ask is, well, how do we respond to those that have divided from us? What are we supposed to do? As is J.C. Ryle put it, let us never be moved by those who charge the gospel with being the cause of strife and divisions upon the earth. It's not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt hearts of man. So long as some men and women will not repent and believe, and some will, there must needs be division. To be surprised at it, it's the height of folly. The very existence of division is proof of Christ's foresight and the truth of Christianity. So if the reason why there is division is because the sinful hearts of others, what are we supposed to do? Well, one thing that I want us to make sure that we don't do is to revel in a divided status. Sometimes we contend when we're cheering for a team that there is the sense of wanting to put down the others because they don't see the light as you do. But that's not how we approach those that have been divided from us. We don't approach this as saying we're better than you. We approach this as saying these are not our enemies, but that these are souls that need to be rescued, that are imprisoned in their own sin, just like we were. This is not something that we to look to them and say, it's just like, oh, well, if they could just see things the way I do. That's not the difference. The difference has not been our cleverness or our superiority in some way. This has been the grace of God that we see what we do. And that's why when we come to those that have been divided from us, this means that we should approach them with love. And that we should also approach them with hope. Because if Christ can transform and redeem us, then he has, we have hope for them as well, don't we? When we look at people this way, it will change how we approach them. And I think it will change them in a couple of different ways. The first is when we approach people as souls that need rescue, we will spend a lot more time in prayer for them, because ultimately we're looking for a divine miracle in their hearts, aren't we? We spend our time praying for them. And second, we'll be patient with this process. If you have someone who is divided from you, whether it 's your family or friends or coworkers or anything like that, I can tell you that God is working on that person. How do I know? Because you're in their lives. God's put a Christian in their path who cares about them and is going to bring the gospel to them. That doesn't guarantee that they're going to fall to their knees in repentance the first time you bring them the gospel. It doesn't mean that you may ever see your work accomplished. But God is working in their lives because he is working through you. So be encouraged. Be patient. Be patient. This is God that is working through you. So we will pray for them. We will be patient with them. And finally, while we always want to have an answer for the hope that lies within us, we want to have answers to questions that, that people bring. This is ultimately when we come and give them the gospel, this is not going to be whether or not we've mastered all of the contents or can answer every question. Ultimately, the hope that we have that Christ will transform them is Christ. So be bold in bringing your gospel witness. Don't feel like, well, you know, i I got to get all these things perfect in my life or i got to understand all of these things and get all these answers to all of these questions before I can even start the process. Don't do that. This is not an apologetics class. This is a task of bringing the gospel, the simple gospel, to them in word and in deed, to bring that to them. Now, Jesus gives us another expectation that we do well to heed. This is verses 54 through 59. We need to make sure that we have taken this warning for ourselves before we bring it to others. We need to make sure that we have repented to Christ's side. If there is going to be a great division that's going to split humanity down the middle, we need to make sure that we are right with him. And it needs to be done quickly because we know that time is short. How do we know that time is short? Well, Jesus told us it was. <laughs> now it's been 2000 years you say since uh, since Christ told us that. It's like exactly. Now it's 2000 years closer than it was when he said it. We must be getting close now. This is something that we need to take seriously. And we really don't need to be looking for any other celestial signs or anything like that to confirm that Christ is on his way. He said he was. That's all that we need. And he is telling us to prepare for the day of the Lord. While we contend to we, we need to make sure that we resist the tendency to ignore warnings. Now, many of us, I remember growing up, I would have friends that would, had this startling ability to ignore the check engine light in their cars. As a type A personality, I never understood how that was possible. But they would always just drive on and say, oh, that light's always on. And drive on with boldness that they did not earn. And eventually, their car would surrender. That light was telling the truth. They'd be broken down somewhere with their cars. And us type A personalities would come with our functioning vehicles and come and pick them up. Not to sound proud or anything, but... But we need to make sure that we don't do this when it comes to our eternity. When Christ said that he is coming and that he is coming quickly and expects us to be at his service... That's what we need to do. It's not a suggestion from our dashboard or a missing sensor. This is Christ the King who is telling us to be ready, to take stock of our souls. So, how do we prepare? How do we, if these warning signs are apparent? Here, Jesus uses the uh, predictable weather patterns of the Middle East. Uh, when there would be a wind blowing from off of the Mediterranean that would bring a storm. Or if you had wind coming from the south, that would be from, from the desert. So it would be quite warm. So if we know these signs are coming, if we know that Jesus' day of judgment is upon us, how do we prepare? Well, Jesus sets up an illustration for us in 57 verses 57 through 59. I'll read it again. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the, to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now, we don't want to be distracted by trying to assign meaning to every single element of this illustration. As with all parables, Jesus is making one point with that parable. And that parable, and the point of that parable is, solve your case before it goes to trial. If you have ever had the displeasure of receiving some sort of cease and desist notice, or if there was some sort of violation of copyright law or something like that, it is far easier to deal with things outside of court. If you know that the case against you is rock solid, going to court is not going to help you. You're only going to find punishment and legal fees on top of that. Instead, we do do our best to try to settle out of court. And this is what Jesus is trying to bring about here. This poor individual that's being dragged before the magistrate appears to be in debt and is heading to debtor's prison, which is why he is not going to get out until he's paid the very last penny. In debtor's prison, you really didn't have much hope of getting out because you couldn't work while you were in debtor's prison. You were in prison. So your hope would be that maybe your family would be able to scrounge up the money necessary in order to bust you out. Be able to get you out of someone to pay your penalty. and Sometimes in in prison to encourage the family to pay that they would beat the prisoner who was inside the jail cell. The word that Jesus is using here is you will not get out until you've paid the very last penny. This was the smallest unit of currency that was possible. The idea would be if you were in debtor's prison with a $10,000 and one cent fine, you could pay the $10,000, but even if that one penny was missing, you wouldn't be getting out. It doesn't take much imagination to realize that what Jesus is talking about here is the final judgment. There are a lot of parallels between what he is warning us about and what this prisoner is going for. Facing a human court can be quite scary. But usually, if you spend enough time or hire good enough legal counsel, you can find a loophole or some sort of technicality and get yourself out of whatever penalty you're looking at. But there is no getting out of God's court. There is no loophole in God's laws. He has every bit of evidence and he's got everything. There is no getting out of that. And that if we face God in court, we will lose. And whether our debts appear in our mind to be of $10 billion or whether the debts in our mind appear to be just a single penny, sins against God require an ultimate punishment, an eternal punishment. And they may say, now that seems kind of harsh. Why is it that all these things, uh, these one sins that I have committed or these few things here and there... Demands such a long penalty to the fact that I would never be able to pay it off. We recognize that it's not just the sins that we commit, but who we commit them against. We are committing them against the highest authority in all the land—the one who has given us everything, and the one that we owe everything to. So there is no bottom to the end of our punishment because there's no bottom to the end of our sinfulness. Whether we realize that or not, it is a deep offense to God. But you can settle, Jesus says. You can settle before your court date. Trouble is, we don't know exactly when our court date is. So we do best to settle today. And As one commentator points out that Christ has made this settling to be rather easy. It's not because we have an easy case, but because of what Jesus has done to solve for it. And the first way that we deal with our case is we need to admit that we have no defense. We admit that we're guilty. Usually not the way that you would approach things in court. You try to hide your guilt. But in dealing with Christ, you can be as honest as you can. Because here's the thing. There is no way that you can characterize your sin, any one of your sins that you have committed, that would have God saying, whoa, whoa, now, that's kind of harsh. You're being too hard on yourself. There is no way that we can characterize even the smallest of our sins that would ever make God say that. And anything that we could look at in any one of our sins, we could go on and on and on forever about how awful that thing was that we did. So we can be very brutally honest with God. As the old joke goes, cheer up, you're worse than you think. Now, the only reason why that's funny is because our Savior is more powerful than we think. And he is more gracious than we can possibly imagine. That's why we can be honest with ourselves and with our Savior. Because there is grace to spare because the judge has gotten off the bench and has paid your fine for you. He has endured the wrath of God and has put an end to all your sin. Now, maybe you're here today and you say, it's like, you know, I've always had trouble seeing myself as someone not a good person. This was something I struggled with when I was younger. I grew up in a, in a very wonderful home, a good Christian home. I didn't get myself into a lot of trouble. So I had a hard time seeing myself as a bad kid. And I was advised to pray my way through the Ten Commandments, really meditate on what all of those things meant. It wasn't just not killing somebody, it was also not hating them as well. It was also just not doing sin, but it was also doing positive righteousness. And once I began to really sit down and be honest with that thing, I could see that I was in fact not a good person at all. I may have looked better on the outside than compared to other kids, but I was no better on the inside. In fact, you could make the argument I was worse on the inside because I at least knew what I was supposed to be doing, but I wasn't doing it. So maybe you find yourself in that situation, so I would advise you to do the same thing. But maybe you're in the other category. Maybe you do know how deep your sin goes, or at least as far as your mind can grasp onto that. And you have a hard time believing that you can be forgiven. Well, for that, then, we need to meditate on what it is that Christ has done for us. And the humiliation that this was. And who it is that's paid our fine. This wasn't just some good religious teacher giving us an example about sacrifice. This is the Son of God coming down to deal with our sin. He's not going to miss anything. We didn't have someone incompetently working our salvation. This was the one that that we could trust for anything. And he has assured you that your sins can be forgiven if you will but come to him and ask. That he has promised that he will not turn anyone away and that he can separate you from your sin as far as the east is from the west. He can do that for you, and he can do that for the one that you've got in mind right now, of who maybe has been divided from you. That God can reach that person too and can work a similar miracle in their life as well. Sometimes in Presbyterian theology, we can get caught up in all the election and sovereignty and predestination and use those as excuses for why it is that we don't feel comfortable coming to God. It's like, well, what if I'm not elect? God has never wondered that question. If you feel that you want to come to Christ, then guess what? God is drawing you. That's something that we take comfort in. If you're concerned about your salvation, that's a good sign that he's working on your heart. And we leave, Christ doesn't say to all those who feel like that they have been chosen can come to me. It's like, no, everyone can come to me. I will in no wise cast out. So that's the hope that we can bring to our people. That's the hope we can bring to our family. That's the hope we need to preach to our own hearts every morning. When we say, I'm not worthy to bring the gospel to my family. No, you're not. But guess what? Jesus is. He's done more than just take away your sin. He's also given you all of his righteousness as well. It's an exchange of record. Jesus has signed his name to your papers and he has signed your name to his. So that at any moment when God looks at you, even when you're in the middle of sinning, he looks and sees you as righteous. He sees you the same way as he sees his own son and is delighted. Not because of what you're doing, because of what Christ has done for you. So take that, boldly go to those family members, boldly go to those coworkers. And they come back and they say, well, I see how you live. I see that you're a sinner. And you say, yes, that's right. That's why I need Jesus. That's why you need Jesus too. So what's our takeaway from this passage? What do I want you to remember as you walk away from this sermon? Well, there is going to be Opposition to the gospel message. But we have an obligation to share it anyway because the time to do so is shorter now than it was yesterday. People will oppose you for speaking the gospel to them. I mean, they're going to, some might even oppose you showing the gospel to them and being kind to them. But when that happens, we don't say that our time is wasted, we don't say that our efforts are in vain. We might not see the effects of our work for years to come, but the bottom line is that we're working for God. And that work is never going to return void. And if you're sitting here today saying, well, I think I might be on the other side of the division. I might not have a relationship with Christ. Then I would beg you today to put your faith in Christ. Leave aside all of your other efforts to try to reform yourself. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ. Throw yourself on the mercy of the court, for the court is merciful if you will but come to him today. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word that you have brought to us today. Lord, we know that we have no hope for salvation outside of you. We don't have anything to commend ourselves to you, but we have Christ. And I pray that you would help us to lean into that gift that you've given to us, that we would see our need for Christ and lean more into that every day, that we would draw hope from that, that you have transformed us so that you can transform others. I pray that you would give us boldness to take this word to a lost and dying world, a world whose judgment day is coming. So let us be bold. Let us love well. Let us be awake and alert, for this time is short. So in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.